0: Welcome back to University of Minnesota Extension's Nutrient Management Podcast. I'm your host, Paul McDivitt, Communications Specialist here at U of M Extension. Today on the podcast, we're talking about carbon markets. We have three guests on the podcast today. Can you each give us a quick introduction?
1: Sure. I'm Anna Cates. I work out of St. Paul as an Extension Specialist in Soil Health.
2: I'm uh, Jody DeYoung-Hughes, and I work for the University of Minnesota Extension out of the Wilmer office, and I also work with uh, Soil Health and Reducing Tillage.
3: Amy Robuck, I work with Central Soda Cooperative based out of Little Falls, Minnesota, and I work our, with our Environmental Services Division focused around soil health nutrient management.
0: Great, so starting off, what is soil carbon sequestration and how does it work?
1: I'll start on that one. So, soil carbon sequestration is referring to the process of increasing the amount of carbon in the soil. There's naturally carbon in all soils. This is also sometimes referred to as soil organic matter. If you get a soil test, you'll see 2% organic matter, 5% organic matter, if you're lucky, that kind of thing. Um, And that refers to anything made of carbon in the soil. Um, The organic matter can be about halved to get to your carbon amount. So if you got 4% organic matter, you might have 2% carbon. Sequestration right now is being used to mostly mean just increasing that number, but it kind of implies a permanence in the soil, which is an issue that kind of needs to be addressed, I think, by the the talk around carbon sequestration right now. In terms of how you do increase the carbon in the soil, there's kind of two different ways. Just like with your checkbook, you either want to increase your inputs or reduce your outputs. To increase your inputs, you think about things like uh, growing more biomass, leaving more biomass in place, like leaving your crop residue behind instead of harvesting it for bedding or something like that. Uh, You can grow more biomass by growing a cover crop. Uh, And then you can also increase your carbon just by protecting the carbon you have by improving your soil structure. Those are some, some sort of big picture ideas about how we increase carbon sequestration.
0: So what are carbon markets and how do they work?
1: Yeah, so
3: I'll uh, start with that one. So a carbon market is a place where um, companies can go and buy carbon credits from producers, for example. Um, So a producer generates carbon on his or her operation. They can go to the open market and sell those credits um, to a company and that company will pay them for, for that credit.
1: I think it's fair to say that these are generally motivated by companies trying to reduce their carbon footprint. They're essentially carbon offsets for the carbon that a company is producing, uh, pumping into the atmosphere just as the cost of doing business through transporting goods or producing goods or that kind of thing. Is that about right, Amy, in terms of why companies are doing this?
3: Yeah, they're trying to overall um, reduce their carbon footprint, be environmentally sustainable, um, and this is a this is a good way for them to accomplish some of those goals.
2: Yes, and agriculture has a large role in that. Uh, we do about uh, 11% of the total greenhouse gases go into agriculture, which, you know, on a worldwide basis isn't, you know, 50% or more, but we actually have a, a really good chance here to show that we can uh, capture carbon and, and really help keep it down into the soil. And it has a A lot of benefits for the farmer, not just the payment.
1: Yeah, that's right. That's so important, Jody. That increasing carbon for companies, it's kind of a, a narrative piece. It's something they can tell their their customers that they're reducing their carbon footprint and they're acting more sustainably. But for farmers, not only do they get that narrative piece, but they might get some co-benefits in terms of how their cropping system works, how water works on their farms, good soil structure, those kinds of things. So, for the, it's not it's not just an add-on for the farmer. We hope.
3: You know, I think for for our company is we're trying to to bring that holistic approach to our customers um, and being that that service provider that that can help navigate some of this these waters for for our producers. It's a very complex space. Um, so, how do we implement some of these new practices? What are the benefits? Not only like you said on the farm, but could there be monetary benefits of it? So. Um, it's definitely a very uh, it's a very quickly changing space, and it's something that I know we're collectively invested in as a cooperative to help provide that guidance to our to our uh, customers and and to our sales staff.
1: Right, and just to make sure that we have all this straight so amy's working for central soda which is helping farmers to navigate carbon markets there are also companies like you know large multinational companies that are buying the carbon credits so they might have different motivations and i think that has more to do with the the geopolitical landscape if you will and and how the conversation about climate change has been. changing on the the international stage over the last few years, let's say. So they're influenced by what's happening on those uh, formats. And then they come to companies like Amy's and then Amy's working with the farmers and a bunch of layers in there.
0: So what are some of the risks and benefits of carbon farming?
2: Well, Risks are always when um, change and trying something new. That's usually a risk but we do have a lot of data that shows the same things that help build soil health also capture carbon. And we have more and more data from many different states that show that uh, reducing tillage does not necessarily mean you're gonna reduce your yields. And um, adding cover crops, that has a little risk to it, but it also has a lot of benefits to it. So farmers are really used to balancing what are the risks versus the rewards out on their fields. And I think the carbon markets came at a really good time. If they, When they were here about 15 years ago and it it kind of fell apart, a lot of these uh, practices of cover crops and no-till and strip-till were still fairly new or maybe not even looked at yet. And so to to jump into that market and go to no-till, there wasn't a lot of data to always back it up, especially in Minnesota. Nowadays, um, we have a lot of data on that. And we show that we're not getting a yield hit by, by having more residue out there. We're actually showing lots of benefits and carbon is one of them.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right, Jody. Carbon is one of the benefits there. And then, in, in terms of risk, I, I just was at a grower meeting out in far western Minnesota, and there was a great group of growers who were experimenting with strip till, experimenting with other reduced tillage practices, experimenting with cover crops. And the way they talked about it was essentially the same as they talk about any farming practice. Not everything works every year. You know, this hybrid didn't work this year. I didn't actually need that fungicide pass I put on this year. It was kind of a waste of money. So, every year there's something that didn't work perfectly. Perfectly and something that works pretty well. And so I think that you have to think about these practices in, in that context. Um, and, and and look for those sort of both small scale on farm benefits and also the big picture societal benefits, which is kind of uh, why the, the larger companies are, are talking about these practices now. Are there any other risks you bring up with your people, Amy, as you're talking to an individual grower? What do you tell them to look for?
3: you know, I always tell them it's a process, right? Um, it's, it's, you know, we think about soil health and changes over time. It's going to take time. Um, I always tell producers, let's start small, let's try something first. So you're not jumping 100% into no-till or strip-till or cover cropping every acre, but, Um, we start, I kind of start it like I call it the 101 program, right? Let's take a look at potentially doing cover crops after a soybean crop or after silage corn. Can we use that not only to help build carbon in our soil for maybe the carbon markets, but could we use it as an alternative forage piece if they have animals on the landscape? Um, so I tell them, let's start small, let's make that risk small. Um also, there's government assistance out there, there's, there's different financial programs to help them starting different tillage practices, carbon, or excuse me, soil um, uh, covers, and that again leads to building more carbon into our soil, so um, that's kind of the main things that we start off with with their producers, and then eventually it's kind of almost like that next year they come back and they're like, well, I want to do more. I want to do more so it's it's a it's a trickle down effect and then the neighbors start seeing it and asking questions and um so um it definitely has caught on i think it's uh i think it's uh we're in a good spot right now
1: so you're saying your guys aren't only doing it in the back 40 that nobody can (laughs) see behind the pasture or whatever
3: (laughs) some of them do you know i have a few of them i had one producer down by hutchison he uh this last year he He's like, well, I got this 20 acres in the middle of the field. I didn't till the cover crop. I'm going to go no till into it. So no one can see it.
1: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> some of
3: them, they're like, yeah, I'll do it right along the road. I, I don't, I don't care what my neighbors, neighbors think when I'm planting into this cover crop and it's green and, you know, up to the tractor tires. So It's uh, every producer is different. Every situation is different. But that's why, you know, we're here to help on an individual basis with our producers to navigate that field of risk reward, cost
2: share, um, monetary benefits, things like that. I have a group that say, well, you know, they don't want the neighbors to see what they're doing, especially if something doesn't work well. And I tell them if they put it in and something doesn't work well that to give me a call because I have a bunch of signs that say research by the University of Minnesota and they can put it out there. <laughs> there and go. Blame the university.
1: Good plan. Yep. Amy, I'm curious too, you mentioned uh, cost share from other programs. Are the markets you're working with allowing growers to stack those payments, both a carbon payment and an, uh, maybe an SWCD or NRCS payment?
3: Yeah, so the pilot project we're working with, um, it is stackable. Um, so some of the producers are stacking it on top of um, NRCS cost share programs, SWCD payments. Um, also Practical Farmers of Iowa has some cost share benefits for, for small grains and covers. Um, so all those are, are stackable and um, that's why, you know, coming to talk to someone here at Center Soda NRCS, we can kind of navigate that field, right? So as of right now, it is. In the future, I don't know. Um, You know, the program I do work with is a pilot. So there's very, it's a very short-term contract for growers to try the carbon markets before they buy in.
0: Can you tell us a little bit more about that pilot program? Uh, When when did it start and how's it going?
3: Um, So the pilot, this is probably good. We're good two, two and a half years into it. Um, So it started with the Stearns County SWCD um, in the Sock River watershed, um, started with a partnership with them, Greg, Page, and with the Nature Conservancy. Um, so when we first started this, it was a group of us getting together, figuring out we have this donor money on how we can move forward with implementing um, sustainable practices on the landscape, and then hopefully resulting in a partnership with a company to sell carbon credits. They partnered with the Ecosystem Consortium Marketplace. It's a nonprofit, marketplace and between donor funds with NRCS, um, we were able to develop a uh, two-year pilot project that's now been expanded to throughout Minnesota um, for producers to to join, to get their feet wet on um, implementing some new practices on the landscape, how much carbon that would sequester with those practices and then sell them on the open market hopefully 2023 when the marketplace gets gets started so right now we're, we're still in the beginning stages COVID kind of set a few things back but we're hoping to ramp up this year the goal is to have 50,000 acres within the pilot so you know I'm not quite for sure where we're at with that but we do have a handful of producers that are going to be getting their first payments here this year for practices done in 2021 which is really exciting So it is a short-term contract. They're only looking at a two-year contract. So it's a good way for producers to try it, you know, to try cover crops, to try reduced tillage um, and some of those other practices and, and earn a little bit of money and see what the carbon markets are all about. You know, one thing we do try to point out to producers, it is a pretty, pretty robust process as far as information needed. Um, so we are asking a lot of information on, a, on that acre as far as all tillage passes, dates, depth of tillage, tile lines. We're asking if there's irrigation, depths of the water tables. I mean, there's there's literally, I think, a page or two of information we ask on each field. You know, we need to have a lot of information to get that output of our of our carbon on the acre and then also with this pilot we do very robust soil sampling so that is part of the pilot is is it's a little bit excessive at time but that's the purpose of figuring out what's going to work in the best for in the future with these types of programs so
1: yeah there's no such thing as too much soil sampling here. Come on.
3: <laughs> yeah it's to, um I, one of my fellow co-workers did a lot of the soil sampling last fall and he He said he he loves soil sampling, but uh, sometimes when the cores go down 20 some inches and two inches across and you got to pull 80 of them on a 40 acre piece, it's a little, a little much, but I have purpose behind it. You know, it's, it's trying to, to get what is the best approach? What is the most economical approach and what's going to be profitable for the farmer in the future? So that's what I like from that
2: standpoint with this pilot project. I know some of the ice states have uh, water quality credits too. Do we have any of those in Minnesota yet?
3: Uh, it is in the works. So MPCA has been, in, been doing some of it. There has been some water quality trading happening within the state, within different watersheds. Um, part of the pilot project is to look at water quality and water quantity trading. Um, I know Leif Fixin from the Nature Conservancy is our main point person for that. Um, he's been trying to work with hopefully some buyers for this, this pilot project for that.
0: Amy, have you gotten any feedback from the farmers who are participating in the pilot? Uh, are they satisfied so far?
3: You know, I think they're going to be satisfied when they see that first page. <laughs> they're going to really like that. Um, you know, it, it it does take a little time. So it's uh, the winter is a great time to do some of this stuff. So um, you know, they do say it's a lot of information Wow, I can't, you know, the main thing is I can't remember that far back because we do go back to 2018 to try to get the most accurate information, even though we're going to be selling credits in 2022, we still need that historical information on that acre. Um, so sometimes it's a little difficult for them to remember that far back on things. Um, but that's where we encourage good record keeping if they're using precision aid platforms, um, to, to input every tillage pass in they're doing, put the dates down on a piece of paper or notebook or something um, so we can make things a little less uh, time consuming maybe in the future. But typically once that acre is set up in the program in the ESMC platform, um, it's pretty simple just to add to that acre year after year. So the initial can be a little robust sometimes.
1: Yeah, but I think it's fair to, go back to what I was saying in the early part about how carbon is sequestered in the soil, it's a really complex process depending on your soil texture, which as we know, can vary across a 40 acre field substantially, right, Amy? And so your carbon sequestration can vary alongside that. And that's, at this point, I would say the jury is still out on how many samples we need for a carbon market to feel robust to the buyer of the credit, and, uh, you know, not be so owner as, as Amy's talking about, maybe I'm hopeful that in the future, we might not have to do as many samples as you're talking about, but we're still building the model so that we can be more certain about what practices with what depth of tillage at how many passes at what soil conditions, like you're collecting all this data will sequester X, Y, or Z carbon.
3: Yeah. Yep. And you know, some of the initial stuff we're getting back is really realizing, okay, we are oversampling, but that's good. (laughs) Because we need to, we need that information back. Um, but I found it very interesting. The, the coworker that did the sampling, he said, even we did a lot up here in central Minnesota on the sands. You think a sand field wouldn't change? He says, yeah, the top, maybe a couple inches, but he said, even you go a few feet away and he would pull another core. It changes. Yeah than a person thinks. And most people don't think about past that few inches, what does our subsoils look like? Even on a sand, everyone says it's a sand piece. Well, no, not necessarily. There is a lot of variability even within those types of
0: acres. Anna, I think you were quoted in in an article about kind of the measurement problem uh, when it comes to, to carbon sequestration. Can you talk a little bit about that issue?
1: There's a few aspects of the measurement problem. One is that is the spatial variation that we've been talking about. And I think we've kind of covered how we're trying to address that with taking too many samples so that we have a better sense of what the variation is. Another piece is that you really have to measure in the beginning, just going to a no-till field and a tilled field and saying, well, one's more than the other, doesn't tell you which direction you're going. Are you going up? in both fields, but one is going up more? Or are you going down in both fields and one is going down more? So you always have to have that baseline data. And again, this is why pilots like Amy's part of are are really important. And then the other thing is that we do have to measure deep in the profile. Like Amy said, there's not just variation on the surface, there's variation in the, the deeper soil. And when we talk about the carbon stocks of the planet, you know, I think it's pretty Uh, common for soil scientists to start a paper on carbon with something like soils have more carbon than any other pool in the earth. And that's true, but that's only going down to a meter or something. So when we're thinking about what soils can do in the total global carbon budget, getting down really deep is pretty important. Um, I think those are the main things that I would think about.
0: What else should farmers interested in participating in carbon markets keep in mind?
2: kind of what I had mentioned before is that this is a piece of going to soil health and a way to maybe get paid to try new things. Because when you improve the soil health or improve the structure of the soil, the soil aggregation, just by leaving residue out there, you're going to have better water infiltration. So when we get those pounding rains, that water gets into the soil quickly and it's held there better too um, for later on in the season when you need it in July and August when it starts getting really droughty. And when you have the soil covered, then you reduce the erosion. So you're not seeing all the snert in the ditches and watch, watching your soil blow away. And when you also have aggregation, it helps with compaction because those are like mini columns in the soil that help, held, help hold up the weight of equipment and keeping the equipment, you know, you have better traffic ability. And, you know, it's, there's so many other benefits. And there are, if they start, trying to improve soil health, they are improving carbon. So if they're really interested in soil health, I would definitely recommend that they look into the carbon markets.
3: You know, another thing I think when producers start looking at carbon markets is, is to ask questions. Um, not every carbon contract is the same. Not every piece of information is the same. So what I typically tell producers is gather information, ask questions. There's a lot of different, um, if you Google online carbon market questions, there's a lot of different questions you can prepare to ask that person there that's, that's um, presenting that information to them. Um, but that's the best way, you know, there's some markets are doing look backs. So they're paying you for historical credits. Some are only paying for future credits and current credits. There's sometimes there's going to be, if you've already established cover crops historically on that acre, you might not be eligible for the program. So I always tell guys, ask questions. There's no such thing as too many questions when it comes to this And, and take your time to do the research and ask for a copy of the contract. A lot of these companies will provide you with a copy prior to you signing of the contract. So you can actually read through it and determine if that's the right direction for for your operation.
2: Oh, yeah, very good points. Um, What kind of uh, payments are you seeing per acre with the farmers in your pilot program?
3: In the pilot project, you know, we're hoping payments and that information is still going to be kind of hashed out here, I think, over the next month, as I understand. But we are going to pay on a per acre basis. A lot of carbon companies will pay on a per tonne. The reason this pilot is paying on a per acre is because it is grant funded money. Um, in the future, I could see that going to a per ton, you know, we're hoping to get around that $15 per acre, um, for the pilot project. After that, we see anywhere from $7 a ton all the way up, I've heard to $20, $30 a ton. So every every company is different. That's why I always, you know make the point to ask those questions and um, understand where where you sit maybe initially with carbon and what the potential could be.
1: And Amy, that those numbers are in the hands of the farmers, not including the the service fees for the stuff your team is doing.
3: Yeah, so there is a lot of, like I said prior to this, there's a lot of information. There's a lot of backside computer work that is done with these type of programs. So um, in order for us to gain some profit for our time, there is going to be fees administration fees that are going to be associated with it. Um, and of course fees with implementing new practices, might it be a cover crop or reduced tillage system. Um, yeah. Those are the kind of things to weigh into when a producer thinks about going into a carbon market.
1: I'm just going to share a perspective I heard from a producer yesterday who has been doing some of these practices for a while. And he's had conversations with a couple of companies who have approached him. And in both cases, he decided not to sign one. He just didn't feel good about the contract. Um, And part of his reasoning was that he'd been doing it anyway and was going to do it anyway. And he didn't like the idea of uh, someone else having some say over what he was doing. Uh, he wanted to kind of do it his own way instead of the way it was specified on the contract. Um, and then there was also a little sense of, of, uh, of ownership of his own conservation work, which I thought was really interesting. He said, well, why don't these guys reduce their own carbon footprint? I'll worry about my carbon footprint and let the company worry about their carbon footprint. I'm not going to greenwash their carbon for them. So that, that was an interesting um, perspective from a grower, I thought.
2: I was talking to uh, somebody at the Soybean Growers Association, and he was saying that your credits could be uh, sold kind of different ways. So let's say um, the people who are buying soybeans, they have these farmers who are are holding down carbon. So that company that's buying the soybeans actually gets the credit, but the farmer won't get the credit. You know, where in the chain system who gets that carbon credit is is kind of really up in the air still. Yes. And so when you're saying that the farmer should hold on to it for himself, um, I could see in the future that. They they may want to do that. Um, right now I, I I'm kind of saying put your big toe in, try the low-hanging fruit. Well, you know, like the um early season crops and vegetable crops and things like that, and going just trying to go to vertical till instead of all the way to strip till or no till. And try it on a few acres, kind of like you're saying, maybe the 20 in the middle of the section, <laughs> but <laughs> give it a, a try and see how. How this works for you, and then I'm I I think there's going to be more and more opportunities for farmers to either sell these themselves. Yeah, I, I just think it's still pretty open what's going to happen in the future.
0: Right. Yep. And uh Amy, do you, do other co-ops in Minnesota have positions similar to yours, or is yours the kind of a unique one?
3: Uh what we do is very unique. Um, so quick history. Center Soda, um, myself, we decided about four years ago to focus my position more on nutrient management. Um, Being a technical service provider with the NRCS kind of started that. And as the position grew, people started to add to my team. And we now have rebranded as our environmental services division within Center Soda because of some of the carbon markets, the soil health. Irrigation water management there's just such a complex space um, that we feel like uh, we need to bring this to our producers and and be that leader in the field and help them navigate some of this 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 area so. um, When I first started this we tried to reach out to other co-ops that have done this before and we found only one other co op so this is a very, very unique. Um, we're also very lucky to have a partnership with Morrison County Soil and Water, um, and Trutera Lando Lakes to have a conservation agronomist now on staff. So, um, she's going to be helping us navigate some of the carbon markets, cover crop implementation, working with producers on reduced tillage. So, um, this definitely, this space is growing in our area.
1: Yeah, I will say, Paul, I've talked to a few others who do similar things to Amy. Uh, You know, Central has technical service providers like Amy on staff in their consulting businesses. Uh, North Country Co-op in southern Minnesota, they have a conservation agronomist that straddles Minnesota and Iowa. And I would say that, like Amy said, this is only growing. The technical service provider list from the NRCS is a good start if if you're not in and if you don't know one in your area now.
2: And uh, the corn growers are helping to pay for a carbon smart program to come out of the University of Minnesota. And so Anna and I are going around uh, talking about carbon, you know, I mean, what is it and what's the cycle of it? A lot of people know their nitrogen and phosphorus and potassium, but carbon, well, it's, it's in almost everything. So to see what's happening there, why is it important in agriculture, what we can do to, you know, either put it in the atmosphere or hold it down. And then a little bit about the markets, but they change a little bit too quickly. So I would be at the end of the talk referring to Amy and saying to go to her to get the real nitty-gritty details of these contracts.
0: I assume that'll be similar to our Nitrogen Smart program. Will, will that be in-person sessions starting next year, or, or what? What's the plan for that?
2: Uh, well, I think Anna and I have already given like five or six of them. Um, oh, nice. and Then, yeah, and we'll be doing more this year, and just trying to figure out where would be the best fit for that. Most of them right now are invited, speaking to go you know, look at the different things there. Um, so it, Brad with Nitrogen Smart, he has, you know, he has actual places and he goes to those and he sets them up and, and it may turn into that too.
1: I think it's fair to say you've experienced a Carbon Smart event as we speak here, Paul. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Great, well, that's, I think that's everything I have. Do you, any last words from the rest of the group?
1: Get in touch if you want to talk about carbon. Yep. We're all here to help and help
3: producers understand this
2: space and how to navigate it. And I think when it comes to carbon, they know a lot more about it than they think they do. We just haven't used those words for it, you know. Um, but the markets are, are interesting. It's a, it is a great way to add a little more money and you can double up on some of the government programs. And you know it does take out the risk of trying something new.
0: All right, well, that about does it for the podcast this week. We'd like to thank the Agricultural Fertilizer Research and Education Council, AFRAC, for supporting the podcast. Thanks for listening.